Elvin Evans, you must be very disappointed at not winning the World Rally Championship this year. No, Lottery League, but you were second yet again to Sebastian Ogier. Well, that's not really a problem. Uh, what do you mean exactly, Elvin? Well, being Welsh, we're used to coming second, usually to English decisions, though. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I am Gareth, he is Zog. Hello. And joining us for the second half of the show to talk about a car which I know Zog is going to be particularly excited about will be Alex Goy. But Zog, were you excited during the Qatar Grand Prix yesterday? Uh, well, we're recording this on Monday, so yeah, yesterday. I was. It was a, kind of a microcosm of the whole of the season, you know, condensed into an hour and a half, I guess, in that you had Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen fighting for the lead, no one else even anywhere in sight. Yeah. I say fighting for the lead. Lewis Hamilton wasn't massively threatened by Max, really. Fair, yeah. But what terrific drama this weekend. You know, we had an incredible qualifying performance by Lewis. Mercedes improvements or finding speed notwithstanding. This is a track where Red Bull were expected to do well, but Hamilton was, what, four tenths of a second quicker than Max in qualifying. You know, That's right. Very, very strong performance. And then in the race, really, Hamilton had the race. He led from start to finish. Max made a very good start, though, and could have had him at the start of the race, maybe, if those first few corners had gone a little bit differently. But, yeah, this is keeping the drama going to the end of the season. We've now got two races left with an eight-point gap between Verstappen and Hamilton in Verstappen's favour. That's plenty of time for it to go either way. I'm really looking forward to these last couple of races. It's a bit like Doctor Who, I think, at the moment, Formula One, when the weeping angels appear in Doctor Who. It's like, don't blink. Whatever you do, don't blink, because you'll miss. And they can get to you through your gaming consoles now, apparently. Which so can Formula One. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Actually, on that subject, I watched the race here yesterday with... Tycho, my older son, as you know, and two of his pals who are young people, of course, as Tycho is. And I was really encouraged to see young people engaging with Formula One. And I asked them about it. You know, why does Formula One appeal to you? Well, it's obvious for Tycho, he's been brought up in the church of Formula One. But for the other two, it's Lando Norris on Instagram. That is a big appeal. They have access to him in the way that they expect from their superstars. And they feel involved. They feel emotionally connected to it. So do you remember what Bernie said a few years ago? You need to sell more watches and young people don't buy watches. So he wasn't interested in selling Formula One to young people. Well, he was wrong. It's really important because, you know, our generation, we're going to be dead in 20 years, aren't we? There'll be no people watching Formula One. That was an interesting comment. I remember that comment that you mentioned there. Eccleston is, was a very shrewd operator. Yep, understatement. And that statement about, you know, wanting to sell watches, young people don't buy watches. To put it bluntly, it's just too dumb a comment, I think, for Bernie Eccleston to have said it and meant it 100% with a straight face. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm sure he absolutely meant it. He was in right, the, in, wasn't in he? The sense of, yeah, well, and also in the sense of talking to, you know, a lot of the luxury goods manufacturers and companies that have supported F1 over the year and want to be associated with the brand as a luxury yep. 
premier prestige brand. Yep. So that's the kind of thing that, of course, appeals to them and it's the kind of thing they want to hear. But he knows that the group of people that are buying watches that cost more than 10,000 quid is not a young market. It's not a market that lasts forever. You need to keep new people coming in. You need to keep young people. Yeah. You need to get young people interested. But Formula One was a few years ago very stick in the mud about its whole attitude to social media, new media, and it's really sharpened its act up. And of course, the simple fact of younger drivers coming in. Of course, people like Lando Norris and Charles Leclerc are going to be making much more use of social media than older drivers. So that process is always going to take place naturally, but Formula One has been smarter about that. Talking about young people, our youngster, Sarah, isn't with us today because she's working in Copenhagen on an eSports project. And I think eSports definitely helps younger people engage with Formula One. You know, if you can drive the Qatar circuit in your living room in the week building up to the race. It helps you with engaging with the race itself. You feel involved. Oh, yeah, That's what absolutely. Tycho was doing. Tycho yeah. spent the week driving around circuits and playing being a Formula One driver, which is ultimately, I think, what we all do when we watch Formula One. We imagine as drivers of real cars ourselves how hard it must be to do what they do and admire them. You know, we have a reference plane, and so does Tycho. Video gaming can be really tough if you turn off all the driver aids. So he gets just how good they are as well. And I think we watched a masterclass, didn't we, at Qatar? This is a circuit that nobody had raced at before in a Formula One car. And pretty much nobody put a foot wrong, with the possible exception of during qualifying where we learned that the curbs, even though they were low because they were for MotoGP, not for cars, they could still have an impact on your front wing. And poor old Gasly damaged his front wing, caused that puncture, which ultimately, if you think about it, gave Lewis the advantage in the race because Max and Bottas's laps were spoiled their final laps in qualifying and then of course they got penalties for not slowing down enough during the waved yellows and these sort of random factors are really important because i think we talk about this a lot formula one we like to think is predictable we have expressions like oh this track will suit red bull or this track will suit mercedes and time and time again when we get there that proves to be incorrect The Mercedes was clearly quicker than the Red Bull over the weekend. And I've said it before on the programme, despite all the number crunching and the analysis of the loads and the speed and the tyre wear and the engine performance, their predictions are often wrong, aren't they? What is it you say about predicting, Zog? Uh, well, it's uh, very hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Yeah. <laughs> but I believe actually that was supposedly said by Niels Bohr, the Danish physicist, although it may be a version of a traditional Danish saying or something. I wonder. But yeah, there you go. We don't like to think that the sport is too predictable. No. You know, too much predictability, no, no, not so much. The only certainty is that Massapin will have a terrible race. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, oh, poor guy. Yeah. I'm feeling quite sorry for him now. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's got to be tough. I hope he gets another chance next year to not suck so badly for an entire season. It'll be quite nice, but then again, let's see. Well, I think it's unlikely. I think he'll probably suck next season as well, but good luck to him. But yeah, speaking about predictability, who would have predicted that veteran Alonso would pull a podium out of the hat this weekend. Crikey. I didn't make very many notes from the race, but one of the notes was Fernando 
exclamation mark, exclamation mark, question mark, question mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, question mark. That is a lot of exclamation and question marks. And so I know you use them sparingly. I do. And correctly in this context, I, I think. I think so. It, Crikey. It was fab to see him up there. He was so happy. During one of the post-race interviews on Sky, I think... Fernando swore when he was asked, I think, by Jensen post-race, you know, how do you feel about this? And I think he said, oh, I've been waiting for so long for this. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I watched it again on the Channel 4 coverage, I didn't see him say that. So, of course, yeah. Yeah, he managed to edit it out. But, yeah, that must be a huge relief for him. It's the biggest gap, isn't it, between podiums for a driver for a very long time, if not ever, something I like believe that. so, yeah. And it's just magnificent to see that. We said before that he's been having a really good season. He seems to have been rejuvenated and he's been racing with a great attitude and getting some good results in there. And he's now you know, really got a result an actual trophy to take away, maybe a copy of to put on his shelf at home. But yeah, it's terrific that he's got a really concrete, solid result in what is bound to be one of his last seasons in F1. Well done, Fernando. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. I bet he's looking forward to the level playing field that will be next year. It's not going to be that level, but it'll be closer than it is now. But I wonder why both the Alpines did so very well at Qatar. There must be something about... They hit on the right setup for their car, for that circuit, or their car, for some reason, naturally sits well with that circuit. We used to get that in the past. I always remember that Jordan cars always did well at Spa. There was something about their data. When they got to Spa, it performed better than anywhere else. Mm. Oh, here's something. This Grand Prix was actually called the Uridu Qatar Grand Prix. Uridu were the title sponsors of the race. And I looked up what Uridu is, and it's a Qatari telecom company. It's the equivalent of BT or O2 or Vodafone. Okay. And apparently Uridu means I want, which is a good name for a brand, isn't it? Uridu. I want that. Yeah. Good and straightforward. Now, I asked another question. The first question was, what is Uridu? And I noticed it. The second one was, did Mercedes use an old engine in practice and then put a new engine in for Crawley or the other engine, not new, but one they'd used before? And I think I've had that answered now because they are saying they're going to put the Brazil spicy rocket engine in Lewis's car for the next race, mm. which suggests that they ran the older engine, not just at practice, but all the way through the weekend. And he was still on top performance. So it's on, isn't it? It's absolutely on. If Mercedes can still hold off this immense challenge from Max in the Red Bull, it is going to go to the line. It's not going to be settled in the next race, is it? Which is a new circuit in Saudi Arabia, isn't it? A new circuit there? Yeah, and I think it feels like Mercedes and Hamilton have the momentum at the moment and have a slight advantage. Although it's at a period of the season and at a couple of circuits where you'd be expecting Red Bull to probably have a bit of an edge. So it just seems to be really finely balanced going into those last two races. And of course, when you've only got a couple of races for things to get sorted out, just one or two little incidents can make a huge difference and could make all the difference. A grid penalty for any reason, mm. a qualifying lap, 
getting spoilt right at the end of Q3 when a yellow flag's come out. One little mistake here, an issue with the tyres there. At Qatar we had this, didn't turn out to be a massive issue, but there was clearly something going on with the limits of tyre performance and the particular nature of the circuit and the way the teams were running there. Because we had three yep. front left tyre failures. Correct. That's not coincidence. That's a certain limit of physical performance and physical strength being reached and exceeded. And actually, Fernando Alonso was probably quite lucky that the safety car came out. Virtual safety car. Yeah, that we had the virtual safety car period at the end of the race. Because otherwise his tyres, which had been on for as long as anybody's, could well have suffered that same failure. But he was able to have a couple of laps coasting around, not putting the maximum strain on them, and he was able to finish. But that could have been a very different situation. The teams were warned, actually. It was described as a front-limited circuit, that that was where the wear was going to be. Pirelli said that beforehand. So they knew that they were pushing to the edge, which is what they all do, don't they? They take it right to the edge. Regarding tyres, during the race, Max stopped first, And then when Lewis stopped, he was called in and Kofi, who was here in the room on a Tycho's friend said, right, any minute now, Lewis is going to be on the radio saying, man, you called me in way too early. That was way too early to stop. (laughs) And about a lap later, that's exactly what he said. So it's clear that the young generation are engaging and understanding Formula One on a very nuanced level. You know, they know how Lewis thinks. Perhaps because of the attention that they get from social media or they give on social media. And absolutely right. But I never know how much to take seriously from the radio messages these days. Mm. When Lewis says, front tyres are really at the end now, is that a coded message to his team to confuse Red Bull? And what he actually means is, that's fine. But communication is really important. They have to have very clear communication. So if they've got a code, it's got to be nailed down hard, isn't it? Yes, it's absolutely true that teams sometimes use codes in their messages, either to surreptitiously say over the air while other people are listening in, "Okay, let's switch to this tactic, or to say, let's switch to this alternate tactic, or to say something else that they expect they might want to say, but don't want to have everyone else listening. But you want to keep those things fairly simple. A driver's got quite a lot of things to be concentrating on during the race, Understatement. (laughs) Most of the radio communication is just what it appears to be, and it's pretty straightforward. The amount of shady stuff they're doing, the amount of surreptitious stuff, is pretty small. But sometimes with Hamilton's radio, he does sort of complain quite a lot, one way or another. And it seems like a lot of the time it's kind of sort of venting and thinking out loud as much as it is actually saying to the team oh you've got this wrong or we got this wrong it's It's a uh, conversation isn't it yeah Yeah. it's a conversation it's some things that sound like they might be criticizing the pit wall or having got the team that they're not so much that as a sort of expressing a moment of exasperation that we should be at this moment absolutely indomitable we are not crushing the opposition with boots of steel uh, (laughs) with the same (laughs) relentless undefeatable energy that we did last weekend do you know what i mean it's a bit of we must dominate (laughs) oh listen talking about bitching in formula one christian horner and toto wolf it's getting embarrassing now isn't it what was it christian horner accused toto of being a pantomime performer 
And during a press conference, very, very intense press conference between both of those two at Qatar, Christian Horner pointedly leaned over to Toto and said, well, explain these stress marks on your rear wing then. I mean, if you believe that there is something to protest about, protest. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, shut up. I used to like Christian Horner. I think he's achieved great things. But I'm getting a bit fed up of his slight whinginess now. Yeah. And I admire Toto's directness. I really do. 100% with you there. Toto is a class act. Yeah. He's a, he really is a class act. And, yeah, Horner is... He's a bit of a whiny little... He's Yeah, he's just whining complaining too much sure it may come largely from a place of being very competitive and being stuck in a very difficult title fight of course he doesn't want to give away anything that he doesn't have to but i think toto shows how you fight with class and i think yeah horner's not really a great credit to him or his team at the moment yeah but like i say you have to give him credit for being in a very effective team boss he's done great things with red bull you know if you're a driver he's certainly somebody you'd want to have as a team boss for all kinds of reasons i think he's driven that much is certain yeah Yeah. i was on a team with him once at uh, johnny herbert karting challenge and we came second and i like to think that christian horner as a kart driver is pretty darn competitive you know uh, he played a large part in us getting yeah. second place I'm i think sure i did too did. But, you know i'm sure you'd I'm sure, sure you <laughs> the reason i think that toto and christian i call them by their first names do forgive me unlocking horns bulls horns perhaps at this time is that the issue that divides and unites them crosses over for them both they've both had rear wing issues or controversy at the moment. Toto was asking questions about why Red Bull seem to be repairing their rear wing all the time in between qualifying and the race in Park Ferme permissions and allowed to do that. And Christian Horner is asking questions about why there are stress marks on the Mercedes rear wing, which Toto absolutely says is completely legal. They're doing everything within the limits of the rules. And I think that's why they've literally come head to head. It's like these two tangential points are are crossing over. They're arguing about the same thing from different points of view. And there's always technical shenanigans in Formula One as they push the limits of what's legal and what's accepted. And everyone thinks that the other team is doing something they shouldn't be doing all the time. Yeah, but you really should... Yeah, and you have good reason to be suspicious that other teams are pushing the rules as far as they can. They will always do that. And if they can find little loopholes here or there, they will do that. But if you don't actually have a reason to think that anybody is doing anything dodgy, then just shut up and make your own car better. Yeah. Correct. Did you see the circuit, the top shot of the circuit at the end of the race? The fact that it's lit up is spectacular in the first place. And then they let off all those fireworks. And then they did a really clever thing by pulsing the lights around the circuit to make it appear as if there were like cars going around the circuit with their headlights on. There were these streams of lights going around the circuit. That was innovative stuff. And I like it when we get new stuff like that in Formula One. I'm not certain that we should be lighting up an entire circuit just for a race. I know it makes it easier to race from a point of view of temperature for the people working at the race. 
But Formula One's going to look at its entire carbon footprint, I think, at the moment. And if it's going to get picked up for stuff, it's going to get picked up for not only going to Saudi Arabia and Qatar and places like that, Abu Dhabi, oil countries, but it's going to get picked up for being opulent, is that the right word? Over generous with their energy usage at the circuit? Well, conspicuous consumption. Yeah. I'd be interested to know what the actual numbers are here, but I'd be happy to make a decent-sized bet that the amount of carbon footprint caused by lighting the Qatar Grand Prix would be a very small component of whatever kind of audited numbers you came up with for carbon footprint of the whole weekend. Yeah. And by far the biggest element of the carbon footprint is going to be spectators travelling to and from the event. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is going to dwarf the team's travel footprint which in turn will dwarf the carbon footprint of the actual racing itself, which will be pretty low down the list of things that have contributed to the week's carbon footprint. Yeah, and even those super bright lights run for hours and hours over three consecutive days. Yeah, I'm confident that will be a very small part of it. Lighting doesn't take much energy. While we're on the subject of maths, Sog, because you understand maths and probability and statistics, largely as a man who's interested in maths. I fake it well. Mainly as a man who plays poker. <laughs> yeah. Here's a question for you. The fact that we've got, was it 800 races this season, as opposed to, what, 12 to 16, which we used to have 20 years ago? Yeah, or yeah, something. yeah, yeah. There were 15 last year, 800 this year. That's right. Yeah, that's, it's a big change. <laughs> Rough, we're rounding the numbers off there. You know, it's, it's just approximate, you know, order of magnitude. So my question to you is, the longer the season, does that increase the probability of it going down to the final race? or reduce the probability compared to a shorter season? Well, that's a good question. So, okay, does a longer season rather than a shorter season increase the chance of it going down to the wire? Or does it make no difference? My first thought is that you look at the limiting cases. So you examine the case where you have one race in a season and you examine the case when you have 100,000 races in a season and (laughs) you work from there. But obviously, I think probably a longer season makes it more likely that it's going to go down to the wire. Once you kind of sort of get away from the point that you know if you've got a two or three race season it's always going down to the wire because you only have the wire yeah yeah you need a long enough season that you've got a season and a wire to get down to so given that you've got a season that that actually has a wire at the end of it i thought a long season probably makes it more likely but there are a lot of other factors that are going to make much more difference than the length of the season whatever factors are going to go into the thing going down to the wire or not there's going to be okay length of season how close the competitors at the top of the field are how random events tend to be. What is the likelihood of cars being randomly hit by mechanical trouble or accidents? Those are the top, there'll be other factors, but just taking those three. Actually, probably the other two factors are probably more important than the length of the season because generally as a season gets longer, assuming you've got a structure where you're scoring the same points in every race, you've got the same kind of points available, what the longer season is going to do is to reduce the variance over a number of similar replays of the same season. The longer season is going to make it more predictable. It's going to give less chance for significant random things, a crash here, a bad weather weekend there, to really affect, to really shape the whole season, because those things are going to even out more. Yeah, fair enough. It's like flipping a coin twice or flipping it 20 times. You're going to get a fairer result over a larger sample, you might say. So if that is the case... 
I was really concerned about the length of this season. I was going to get bored. Oh, no, too many races. I like Formula One to be exclusive. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean, yeah. But the fact that we've had so many, and here we are, just two races away from the end, and we still don't know who's going to be the champion. Respect Liberty or FIA, whoever booked these races. I think you did the right thing. And Zog, as they say, thank you for coming to my TED Talk, or coming to my Zog Talk in this case. Been a pleasure. (laughs) Okay, still to come, Alex Goy on the subject of a very interesting Porsche. Mr. Transport Minister, the House of Commons Transport Select Committee has made the recommendation in a new report that the rollout of so-called smart motorways should stop for a while whilst the safety implications of these roads is re-evaluated. Yes, that's quite correct. And we, as a government, are in full agreement that the smart thing to do here, if you don't mind using a florid analogy, is, if you like, for road planners to pull out of the fast lane (laughs) and in fact pull over into the hard shoulder to consider how we go forward. But Mr Transport Minister, that analogy doesn't work here because smart motorways don't have a functional hard shoulder. That's the entire point. Now look here, Pleb. What do you expect from me? I'm a Tory minister. I do puns and self-interest. Not a proper job. Joining us from his secure bunker in South London, a slightly under the weather Alex Goy. Hi, Alex. Hello. How under the weather are you? Are you beast from the east or are you, oh, it's a bit chill out at the moment? Somewhere between the two. I am able to function. I just don't particularly wish to. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm sort of in that middle ground where it's like, do you want to record a podcast? Yes, I'm capable of doing that. Do you want to do literally anything else? No. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we should all gather to have a duvet day one day. The three of us sat on the sofa under a duvet because I'm feeling a bit under as I had my Pfizer booster shot yesterday. I'm not quite right. We tonight. can watch Grand Prix or something like that. The game Carnival. Yeah, I would treasure the opportunity to do that with you or watch endless <laughs> Star Trek together. It would be joyful, wouldn't it? Popcorn. I mean, I'm not going to lie, the tail end of Next Generation Season 3 is, is on my Netflix, ready to go. Um, after oh. this, I'm going to return to my nest and fire up an iPad and attempt to get some work done. I inevitably won't because... Yeah. Uh, and have that on in the background. It's the very last episode as well. All good things. No, 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 of season three, so it's the Borg. Oh, season three, sorry, I missed uh, you saying that. Mm. Oh, yeah, it's best of both worlds, isn't it? Uh, yes. One of the greatest cliffhangers in television history. But sorry, <laughs> we're a bit <laughs> off topic. Should we talk about cars? Let's do that. Oh, go on then. Alex, all I know about this thing that you've been driving this week yeah. is that it's a Porsche. It's electric, but it's got a gearbox. Yeah. What? And it's not a take out. I don't quite understand how it works because I don't work in that sort of witchcraft. I went to Oxford a week or so ago. I think it was like the day after we recorded the last one of these. I toddled off to Oxfordshire to meet a company called Electrogenic, run by this lovely chap called Steve, to have a natter with him, Steve and Ian, sorry, there's two of them, about what they do. So there are companies like Lunas who like making noise but not actually providing cars to drive. <laughs> and uh, still waiting for the call guys you said I could have it really still 18 months yeah. on I've run out of patience yes you've got Lunas you've got Everati what they do is they have a vehicle they do a full restoration they then kind of build it to their standard electrify it and you get sort of an off the shelf 
this is what you get. So in the case of Everati, a little like Singer, you can give them your 964 or they can find you one to buy, but it's your car throughout the process, but they will turn it into one of theirs, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Electrogenic has a different approach to these things in that it's not a, we specialise in this particular vehicle, we specialise in that particular vehicle, we'll do a full body resto, and, 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 and. Basically, if you rock up in your whatever and when can you make this electric they go yeah it's, it's as simple as that nice when it sounds very silly but so if you went in your old you used to have a Sora I did a Toyota right? Sora for 19 years yeah right so if you went to them with that and went make this electric what they do is they'd sit you down and go okay how far do you want to drive how fast do you want it to be what kind of package would you like you can turn like the whole boot into batteries if you want you can do xyz and then they sort of manage your expectations of what you can have so for example if someone went to them with a mini and went i want 400 miles of range and i want to do 0 to 60 in a second and a half they'd go no. You can have a 50-mile range and 0 to 60 in 9 seconds. Well, they are doing some minis. I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about, but I definitely saw a mini there. So you go to them and go, I want this. And they go, OK, we'll take all the bits out of your car and make it electric, which is pretty cool. The idea being that the people that go in and have it done first, there was an MGA when I was there. They've done a Citroen DS. They've done a Morgan Plus 4, maybe Plus 8. And they've done something else, as well as this Porsche... 356 so someone's come in and gone make this electric and they use that as the sort of blueprint for all future electrification of that vehicle the idea being that along the line if someone else with an mga or a 356 or a ds goes i want that they go oh we've done that before let's think they go here's a kit uh-huh. give us this amount of money we will send the instructions to your fitter of choice and it can be done locally oh. to you. So by the oh. bloke who like looks after your car, if they're willing to do the job, you don't have to schlep up to Oxford and then wait for ages for them to get through their list. That's the idea. The fascinating thing is that it all started with a VW camper van where founder Ian said to founder Steve, buy that. And he went, yeah, but the engine's rubbish. And he went, make it electric. Steve went, oh, I'm not sure about that. Is that be a milk float? Ho, 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 ho. And then he started thinking about it. He went, hang on, this actually might be an idea. And he did this big trek to, uh, is it EV West in San Diego? And had a chat with them and went, all right, how do you do this? How can we do this? And they started converting this van. Well, this was a Beetle first thing it was. And went... Hang on, but if we can get this bit off the shelf, but we wouldn't do it like that. And we wouldn't do that bit like that. And so they started developing and building. And there's some bits they buy in, but there's some bits they just create themselves. And the idea was they were going to offer these conversions to commercial entities. So if you've got a big fleet of vans that have been around forever, or you've got a big fleet of this, a big fleet of that, rather than buy a whole new thing, or rather than replace your kind of ancient but iconic fleet of vehicles give it to them and they'll make it electric for you that's the idea except they got everything sorted and all their staff hired and everything together and everything ready to go and with a whole bunch of contracts or something like that and then lockdown happened and all their commercial clients went no see ya (laughs) and pause so what they did was they started offering it to people they just retooled everything and went well we can make your beloved classic which is a pain in the arse and leaky and slow we can make it electric and the business is kind of turned into a thing like their warehouse when i was down they've got a second facility now their whole thing is full they were telling me they've got a fleet of old land rovers at worthy farm wow down at glastonbury so they're all running electrogenic lecky landies yeah 
to see how they'd be used, how they'd work, like feasibility studies, like they want to get a typical use case. And they're saying, well, it'll do 100 odd miles on a farm in a day, if not more, because they're not going very quick. They've got all the torque you need and you can plug them in slowly overnight. The farms are mostly running on renewable energy these days anyway. Mm. So actually, this is a sensible use case. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating business. I was discussing electrification of farm vehicles with a chap called Rob on Twitter yeah. the other day. And he's a big tractor driver and he's a huge advocate of hydrogen. As in he is a big man who drives a tractor or a man who drives a big tractor. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> he's a, a, an advocate of green energy. He's very enthusiastic about green energy for uh, agricultural vehicles. Excellent. And he makes perfect sense. You know, I think the spare space that you have on a combine harvester or a tractor is very attractive for having a huge hydrogen storage facility on board. That is better than looking batteries around. But sorry, I'm getting off the topic. Yeah. I want to know about this car. The most important thing is, why has it got a gearbox if it's an electric car? Because the guys from Electrogenic actually give a crap about driving. So this is the sort of misconception, or not misconception, it's very easy to turn our manual car into an automatic electric car because you just go batteries, motor, get that from engine, you can do it in one speed or you know you can do like two-step transmission, right? Yeah. Uh, but that requires no input from the driver, just the motor does that and it does it as efficiently as it can. You can keep the gearbox what four-speed gearbox it's four-speed in the porsche so it basically meters out the electricity and the torque at different ferocities the only compromise with it is so if you have it fully auto you can fast charge it up to a certain point i forget how fast you can do it but with the manual you can't fast charge it slow charge only but for a 356 that's been converted to electric it's probably an a to a vehicle rather than an a to B to C to D. Yeah, yeah. It's a couple of hours waiting to charge it. But the way it works, it's not exactly like a manual. It is, but it isn't. So what we've got, as I'm just looking at the specs now, we've got a net gain Hyper 9 brushless electric motor, which the press release notes is similarly air-cooled to the car's original 1.6. <laughs> <one. laughs> Reaching a bit for authenticity there, I feel, but we'll give them that. Um, it's 80 kilowatts, 120 horsepower, 235 newton metres, which is a lot mm. of power for that thing. They reckon it's got a 36 kilowatt hour battery, 140 miles of range, which isn't bad, nope. considering it's A to A. Yep. 15 kilowatt charger, so it'll do two and a half hours for a charge. You can, depending on if a different owner wants a different configuration, they can make that happen. As far as the batteries in this vehicle, they're sort of there where, well, they're all over the place, but they're sort of on boot floor, they're in the bulkhead between the, not the boot, but where the engine would be. There's batteries wherever they can fit them. The way the, the stick shift works is the only way I could really describe it is like a robotized manual. So if you remember way, way, way back when, when automatic gearboxes car manufacturers like, well, we've got a robotized manual gearbox, so it's like a manual, but it's a robot doing it for you, which means that if you pulled a paddle or you kind of guessed when it was going to shift, you lift it off, you waited for the car to go <laughs> jerkily threw you in, and then you got back on the gas. Basically that, that's how you shift, because there's no need to blend. Right. So there's no need to blend clutch and gas, or throttle. Right. And you can leave it in fourth or third, and it won't struggle, it won't complain, because why would it? It's got loads of torque at any speed. Yeah. yeah. If you stick it in first, it'll just fly. Second, it'll fly. Third, I had it for an hour and a bit round Bister, 
And we were just hammering around in circles in third gear. And it was properly going for it. But it meant, I was talking to Steve and Ian, the people that go for this option, it's because it's their pride and joy. It's the car they love. And they want to future-proof it, but they don't want it to be crap. Mm-hmm. They don't want to turn it into what they view as a soulless electric car, which means yeah, yeah. Anodyne. one speed. Yeah. Yep. They want to do as little as possible yeah. to take it to an electric version rather than doing yeah. everything that can be done. So keeping the gearbox, which you could argue is not a smart thing to do because you're keeping unnecessary weight, is a good thing mm. because you're keeping the experience that you want to keep in that vehicle rather than making it a more alien thing than it was. Yeah. But what's the kind of ballpark figure for these conversions? And I guess there are questions around they're doing what are more or less prototypes at the moment rather than selling the production version yeah i heard lots of numbers banded around so you know it's cost of car plus yeah 20 30 40 depending on what it is how much battery you want and 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 yeah talking about the size of the kit you know when technology moves on a smaller battery that can do the same range will probably cost the same because people will want that and then they'll want another one as well so they can go further yeah all that stuff so it's not cheap this isn't oh i'll just quickly nip out and get the car converted to electricity Mm. they admit it's still very much frontier tech Mm. which is why they have these cars at at worthy farm it's why you know for the first one of these of each one they keep a data logger in the car they get the car in for a check they want to see what's happened is are the battery staying cool enough is the heater working because of course if you electrify it you have to put in a heater Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah yeah because there's no air coming off the motor. Mm-hmm. You need to make sure that the actual components are lasting and they're interacting properly with the older stuff. All of those things they have to keep an eye on. They fully admit it's frontier tech, they're getting on with things, they're doing it, and they're learning. So, Alex, having driven this car, yeah, did it feel more like a classic old Porsche or did it feel like an electric, smooth, quiet car? I will admit I've failed in my career. Thus far, I've never driven an original 356. That one has escaped no, me. Well, none of us here have. have we? Uh, <laughs> you haven't, have you? Unfortunately not, no. But, uh... no. Everything else about the car was as original as it can be. So there's no new dials, there's no screens here or there. The gear lever's original, the handbrake's original. The rack, the steering itself, is original. The car, it's arrived to them in a condition, and it left with a fully reversible engine removal, but all the bits you see and touch and the rest of the car, that was all original. So it felt light, it felt sprightly, it felt good fun. The steering was heavy as anything, and so I was going around and my right shoulder felt it the next day. I felt like I'd earned a workout. Mm. You know what? It felt good. And shifting gears on your own, it was a very strange sensation. I bet. Especially in a car like that, when you're looking at hundreds of thousands of millions or whatever, you're looking to blend the gears, you're looking to treat it cautiously. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you just bang it in, it goes faster. It's great. Sean, could you have one? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I think, like we said before, you know, taking a beautiful old classic and electrifying it in a sensitive manner gives you a terrific urban vehicle you know if you're a londoner who can afford an expensive indulgent electric vehicle something like that would be fantastic i assume from a registration point of view that we registered as a vehicle that would be congestion charge and ulez exempt for example oh yeah no you can do all that yeah. it's a little like the kingsley thing like oh we've done this conversion and you just need to fill out some paperwork. Right. I don't know who does the paperwork on that. I haven't asked, largely because for 99.9% of their customers, that probably doesn't matter. As Speaking of their customers, you know, their customers are a mix of 
people who have had their much-loved classic and really want to turn it into something a bit different and more sustainable and more reliable. Well, yeah, absolutely, sure, yeah. Yeah, of course. They did a Citroën DS a while ago and, you know, famously reliable French engineering there. Nothing at all on that car could ever go wrong, you know. No, nothing at all. It's completely impervious to things going pop. They did that. People want the more reliable thing. They also get some younger people who want something that's got the classic look but doesn't come with clattery motors and doesn't come with the sort of less efficient, high-polluting image that goes with. And that's something that Everati said as well. Like, their people, younger people, who want something cool, they have, like, the classic 911 look, but they don't necessarily want a classic 911 because for them the noise doesn't mean anything mm. i remember seeing a comments thread on an instagram car outlet about who was buying rimats neveras you know this 2000 horsepower most expensive hypercar in the world and they were saying well you know they're not really car people they're tech fans they want the cool thing and they want something that does all the stuff that the older guard wanted but they don't want it to be clattery and noisy and expensive to maintain, yeah, expensive right. to, you know, keep going. Yeah. But they want the thing. And you got all these people going, well, I know who I'm not going to talk to at a dinner party. Oh, these people are terrible. Oh, these people are the worst. And you've got to remember that a lot of these people didn't grow up with a parent going, oh, well, you've got to love a Porsche 911. Oh, these are the best things in the world. Not everyone is like us. Some people see a new thing made out of an old thing and go, I like the look of that, but I don't like the boars over there who are currently rubbing their thighs viciously at whatever a 2.7 RS is. Well, it's a broad church, those of us who love cars. Mm. They've also got the fact that that their choice is objectively better. (laughs) Cost less to run, it's more reliable. Yeah. We like all the silly stuff that contributes to unreliability and makes things more fun, but yeah, on a practical level, that thing is better. Internal combustion engine cars are just going to get more and more and more expensive to run over the next 10, 20 years because they will just put the duty up on fuel or the price of fuel up to discourage us from keeping that going. So, yeah, it's a medium and long-term investment, even for older people. You know, young people Mm. who invest in stuff that they can have for a long time. Older people have only got 10 years left in their life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. It'll see me out. That bag of potatoes will see me out. Yeah, man. And there's a whole bunch of companies doing this now. There's the electric car company in, I think they're in Machuntleth, aren't they, in Wales, who feature on vintage voltage. And there's a firm in Swindon as well, isn't it? Swins, they're the people that do powertrains for BTCC cars, but they also do a mini. They do, yeah. And their own boxed powertrain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ford themselves are doing a crate Mm. drop-it-in electric drive system now, which they showed in an old F100 or F150, didn't right. they? Like a yeah, 1960s yeah, yeah. one or 70s. Wow. Oh, I mean, yeah. like I said in the last programme, old cars are the new, new cars. It's going to blur, I think. Oh, talking about new cars, electric cars. I was in Soho, Hoban actually, on Saturday night for a jazz festival. Don't judge me. I mean, I'm going to judge you. It's done. Yeah, and I was on the street and <laughs> I saw a Kia EV6 go by. Have you seen one in the flash? I've driven one. Get the trousers out of here. It's magnificent. It looks so pointy and futuristic. I loved it. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. It's really cool and it's good fun. Like, I had the top spec one and they said, oh, which one do you want? You can have the rear drive mid or lower one you can have the top spec ones like i'll have the one with all the power and all-wheel drive please and i chanted around the countryside for ages and ages and ages and it was really good fun it was an entertaining car the ev party piece of 
it goes really fast in a straight line. Mm-hmm. That's wearing off for me. Though they are doing like a 600 horsepower one oh, next year or some nonsense like that. Wow. Like, which is going to be ludicrous. Mm. But it's comfy. It does all the things. There were a couple of things that were weirdly incongruous. So it's, it's got an old school USB slot and a USB-C slot because everything is USB-C powered. Uh-huh. And I couldn't get Apple CarPlay to work with USB-C. So I had to use the old Apple cable. Technology is here to make things slightly more complicated. Mm. Yeah, I don't get why that was. The road holding was good. I know some journos who are far better at this than I were like, well, if you go too fast, you show the weakness in the chassis. But if you don't power into every corner, you'll be fine. The only thing that tripped me up was the lower powered ones, the rear drive only ones. It was a bit wet the next morning and I'm not a helmsman, but it can get a little bit crossed up, yep. even if you're not driving like a wazzer. Yeah, lots of torque at low speed. If you just give it a little bit of poke out of a roundabout, it'll go, way, mm. and you think, oh, hello, mm. good morning, which might upset a few people. Mm-hmm. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> a, a dab of oppo, as they say, <laughs> yes. and you're all right. Yeah. What's the name of this company you make the Porsche? Electrogenic, is that what they're called? Electrogenic. Electrogenic. They're a rock up and see what we can do for you thing. Right. It was mega, and the first question was, okay, why electrogenic? Why have you done this and founder steve went because it's really cool good answer which i like under no illusions they're a tech company but they make cool stuff i'm always six weeks away from a decision to a buying a new car or b moving to wales or both and the current trend for electrifying classic cars has made my dream of owning a gilburn invader estate you know, the shooting brake three-door version. Mm. A little bit more tangible because they weren't the most reliable of cars. But I would love a lightweight chassis with glass fibre body panels and an electric drivetrain. But if I went to Electrogenic, I wouldn't be able to take them at Gilbert Invader. I'd have to take them a Gilbert Genie. So it would be an Electrogenie. That would be the right one. Yeah, amazing. And if I did buy an Invader, I think I'd probably go to the electric classic car company, I think, in Machuntleth and have it converted in Wales in order to keep it purist. Zog, I think you'd admire that, wouldn't you? Well, I appreciate if you could possibly have a Welsh-built car, of course you would have it. So, no, I totally get your logic there. I can't fault you. But, of course, River Simple would be your other good Welsh electric option, surely. Absolutely. Yeah, a hydrogen Gilbert Invader. Oh, now I'm going to go and fantasise about that. Yes, while sitting underneath the duvet to recover from this vaccine boosting through my body. You could call it the Gildenberg. I like it. Very good. It won't <laughs> blow up, though. Don't come here with your hydrogen myths. I know, I know. <laughs> I know you know, I know you know. Alex, thank you for once again. We hate you driving a delicious car. We don't hate well, you. Well, if it's any consolation, I'm winding down for the year now. I'm keeping the phone down. I'm going to have a rest because I'm exhausted. You've heard it. Okay. Can we count you in on our Christmas party show, though? Yes. I'm rubbish at answering questions, but I'm good at asking them. Okay. Well, have a think about a virtual gift for your co-presenters on the programme and I'll leave you that to think about for our Christmas show which is coming soon and also in the next programme we will possibly probably possibly have a new Formula 1 world champion much to discuss in the future you've been listening to Alex bye to Zog goodbye and me Gareth this was Gareth Jones on Speed see you for the next one say bye everyone bye bye everyone To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! Speed!